So I don't know if this is one of those preacher stories or um, a true life event. I've tried to uh, track it down to see if it was in fact true. So I just don't know. I like to give you the heads up on those so that you don't think I'm up here, you know, saying stuff that's true that's not. So I just don't know. I can't verify the uh, truthfulness of this story, but I like the way it makes a point for us. Uh, According to the story, as I read it, there was a particular church that got up in arms because in their small town, there was a businessman who wanted to build a tavern not too far away from the church. Now, I know we're Baptists, so let me explain. A tavern is a... (laughs) So... uh, so they begin the process of building this tavern. It gets built. And the meanwhile, the churches, you know, they go through all the stuff that they can to keep that from happening. And uh, the tavern gets built. It opens its doors for business. And the church decided that the last resort that they had was that they would pray that God would intervene. And so one particular night, while the church was in a prayer meeting, a lightning strike hit that tavern, and burned it to the ground. The tavern owner, finding out that the church had been praying for its demise, filed suit against the church. The judge who heard the initial argument about that, um, oh, I should have said that when the tavern owner filed suit against the church, the church hired an attorney to fight the charges. And so the judge, when he was first beginning to look through the case, uh, said this, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but this one thing I do, the fact that the church hired an attorney to argue the fact that they did not have responsibility for that, he says, I believe that the tavern owner believes in the power of prayer, but the church apparently does not. So let's start a revolution this morning. I would like to invite you to join me in a revolution relative to prayer. And especially as you take your Bibles and go to the book of James with me, let me see if I can set the table a little bit about where we want to go with this. We will be in the book of James now uh, in this mini-series on prayer uh, roughly until school's out. We have a couple of Uh, other special events in there that we will be talking about that will pull us off of the uh, mini-series as we go through it. But for foreseeably through the end of uh, the school year, we're going to be finishing up James's epistle by talking what he says about prayer. And uh, so one of the things that I would like for us to do is to hear this with fresh ears. Um. What is the purpose of prayer? I'm not speaking as a military historian or as a sociologist here. I just want to give you this particular layman's perspective on what a revolution is. Essentially, as I understand it, a revolution is that which occurs when an individual or a group of people are not satisfied with the way things are and they move definitively to change the norm. And if it's in a political context, as we saw a couple of years ago in the Arab Spring, 
or we have seen in American history in the American Revolution. Uh, we could just stack historic examples on top of examples of what a revolution looks like. But I want us to take this approach as it comes to the whole topic of prayer that it is probably time for a revolution in American Christianity when it comes to prayer. So much of what I see and what I encounter with Christian people when it comes to prayer is more driven by social media and by tradition than it is by good biblical point of reference. So I'm going to invite you to join me on this revolution as we, well, let me just say it this way. I'll put it to you in the form of a question. Do you believe with the current way you do prayer in your own life that you have reached the maximum understanding and practice of what God has in mind when he gives us prayer as a piece of our ongoing spirituality? In other words, have you reached a PhD level of practical prayer experience? If the answer to that is no, then I would say to you that argues for going to another level. And so what I want to do today as we begin to set the table a little bit for what James is going to say as we look at him in the next few weeks, I want to go back and I want to reiterate a couple of things that you've heard me say before, uh, but we're going to come at this from a, a basic point of reference that says this, the way we tend to approach prayer in American Christianity today is probably far below what God has in mind for us. So in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18, we're going to read those in just a few minutes. But uh, as we do it, and I'll walk through several comments about that, I just need to make this statement on the front side of it. We step into a real mess in these verses of Scripture. When James comes to write these words and we read them as we will do in just a few moments, we will find that what James does is he throws some of these concepts out there that beg for deeper discussion and yet he doesn't explain them, he just throws them out there. He's going to say some things in here that will push us theologically. He will say some things in these few verses, and I'll stop and highlight a couple of them as we get to it, but he's going to say some things that will push us practically in the way we handle ourselves. He's going to say some things that will force us to ask hard questions about some of those elements of prayer that we just seem to want to take for granted, and all of those argue for us to be really good students of Scripture. So here's what he has to say. There's my first point of, I guess, correction that I would like to make. The theme of this passage that we're about to read is not healing. The theme is prayer. And it fits with all that James has been doing for us as he lays out this ongoing discussion as he moves from one point deeper into that point and then still deeper. Now as he's about to close this little epistle out, he throws this thing out there and he talks about prayer and he talks about prayer with healing attached to it. Uh, And it almost looks like he's a little bit um, uh, just kind of saying, okay, I got all this stuff I need to get in there, and so he's just sticking things on his bulletin board, if you will. But it is very much a part of his structure. As he talks about 
the need for patience and suffering. And as we've looked, as we've walked through this with James, he continues to reiterate one area after another about a person's life and particularly their faith that has to work on a practical level. It has to work itself out. Now he says, your faith has to work in the way you pray. So here's what we find. This teaching point, well, it has healing attached to it. I know that scares us as Baptists. We, we hear any discussions about prayer and healing, and, uh, and, and we start now getting a little bit schizophrenic, a little bit multiple personality on ourselves, because we, at one point, our prayer meetings and our prayer requests in Sunday school classes and others are, are just dominated by, well, you know, Aunt Susie, she's got that corn on her toe. <clears throat> that ought to help you lose a little weight. Think about that at lunchtime. You know, she's got this running rash on her arm. And so what do we do with that? What, how does that come out in a prayer request? And the answer is, well, we just want God to make it feel better. So that part of our prayer request, we affirm healing. But then people start talking about praying for somebody's healing. <laughs> like James talks about it here. And we go, nah, that's a little extreme. He's talking about healing, but, well, let's just see what he has to say. So let's break it down. As we walk through this, I want to show you how I think this breaks down as an emphasis on prayer that also includes some healing discussion. In James chapter 5, verse 13, he starts by talking about personal prayer. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Then he goes to the other end of the, uh, of the spectrum here. And that's one of the reasons I, I say this is more than just about healing here. He says, is anyone, this is still verse 13, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And so in James's context, in first century Christian life, there in uh, what we would call modern day Israel, what we find here is, is a reality that says their medical practice, their medicine uh, industry as we know it in our lives today was nothing like what we are familiar with. Health issues were major issues in that society. So he gives these two ends of the spectrum. I'll go to the positive side first because he uses a term there that we pull over uh, in the book of Psalms. It's, it's to sing praises, he says. So when you're cheerful, you sing about it. It's part of the spirituality and spiritual formation that we promote. But the other end of that spectrum is when things are not going well and you don't feel well. What do you do with that? You don't go around singing then unless you get paid to sing like Brian does. What do you do when you're underneath it all? James says you pray. But that's personal prayer that he's talking about there in verse 13. Verse 14 and 15 now move it off of personal prayer onto community prayer. And he says, there is anyone among you sick. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Let me stop. Now, I'm going to get to verse 15 in just a second. But let me just tell you why and show you why I think this is a mess. Theologically, James, it's like he takes a blender to our good theology and he just mixes it up and he leaves it there for us to deal with it. Here's, a, here's an issue or two for you. 
Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Okay, so what if you're in a church like this one that doesn't have elders? Then what do you do? Now, I know that we, we, we're sophisticated. We've developed this whole thing. Well, we don't have elders, but we have, and then you fill in the blank. We have Sunday school teachers. We have pastors. We have deacons. So we'll just call them. That's not what it says, right? Just stick with me. At least breathe loudly so I know you're out there. Okay. <laughs> See, it's a problem. What, so, so what does it mean there to call the elders? Do we take it at face value? Do we need to find something else in here? What do you do with that? That's the easy one, actually. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil. What kind of oil? I kid you not, I served a church where a guy who... <laughs> He believed that it's supposed to be olive oil. But if he didn't have olive oil, he'd hit you with a little dab of Pennzoil 10W40. Does that work? This is kind of a mess. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And here we go. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Whose prayer? The Pennzoil representative? Or my own prayer when I'm the one who's sick. We'll save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if, okay, here, now we get real serious. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Who affects the forgiveness of this person's sin? The person who is doing the anointing and the praying? And if that's the case, is it the anointing of oil that does the trick? Or is it the faith of the person that does the trick? Or is it both of those? Or is it none of those? Be careful how you answer that. Because if you believe that the healing comes through the mechanism of the oil, you're going to have some real issues before it's all said and done. This is just a mess. James didn't really help us out a whole lot with some of this. Verse 16 now, the first part of verse 16 gets us now to what I call confessional and also intercessory prayer. Verse 16, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So let me stop for a second and say, so if we don't do that, is it impossible to be healed? I'll take it even further than that. If we do that, is it a slam dunk that we will be healed? It's a mess. The prayer, and now's the principle, the last part of verse 16, the principle of prayer that James gets to. And by the way, this is the part that helps me to say that all of this is this umbrella of prayer teaching that James is giving. And underneath that, we have this talk about healing and some other things that are tied to it. But here's that basic principle, that truth that we hold on to that fits exactly with what James has been saying throughout his little epistle. As he has emphasized the need for a faith that works, a faith that plays out in your everyday life and looks like righteousness. It behaves itself righteously. It is grounded in good doctrine. It's righteous as it relates to that. And so that last part of verse 16 pulls it all together. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 
And then verse 17 and 18 give us the example of what he's just said. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So what James has done for us now is he's laid out this fundamental teaching as he comes to wrap up his little letter. He says, oh, by the way, let's not forget this critical element of the Christian life, and that is prayer. And he ties it in to that point that they would most be able to grab a hold of it, especially where their humanity and their human condition and the breakdown of their health pushed them to the edges of what society and their religion, Judaism, had to offer them. And he says, take it to God. So here's the question for us, I think, today. What is the purpose of prayer? How do we approach prayer? prayer as a rule. Here's a truth that I want us to hang on to. I think that what James is doing here and this revolt that we're talking about is that we need to recapture the essence of what prayer is all about. I, I say that because I, I, I don't, I, you know, I've been at this a while now. Um, and, and I continue to try to flesh out my own faith on a day-to-day basis and, and try to take scripture as I understand it and, and let it intersect where my feet hit the ground every day. And, and it's not just about this mental thing that says, okay, I believe God's word and I'll fight you about it. It is that point that says, okay, if I believe it, I have to, it has to work itself out. And so when I come to this whole thing about prayer, I, I, I get mixed signals from life. To, to say, to even ask the question, what is the the, the intent of prayer, what's the purpose behind it, is a, is a crazy question because it's such this, this complex reality for us. It, it, it defies a simple definition. And yet, we live our lives on a day-to-day basis with some presuppositions about what it is. And the reason I think that we need a revolution about what prayer is, because the the prevailing wind of our day when it comes to prayer in the evangelical community is that it is all about getting God in on my life. It's as if, if you follow it closely, it's as if Christians in our day think that God is not savvy enough to know what's going on with us And so we have to be careful that we tell him what we need. I I think whatever else that is, that might be heresy. Or I misunderstand who God is. So we push to push God into our little box. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Um. I'm I'm almost hesitant to go here because I I know, well, I'll just say it this way. I am amazed. Whenever I talk in an illustration like this about Facebook, I'm amazed that y'all still let me be your friends on Facebook, okay? Because I I, I think it's a great um, 
picture for us, a, a positioning tool for us to know where we are in this age in which we live. And so I go to Facebook to see uh, what I find to be true in Christianity in our day, and that specifically as it relates to prayer, the requests that we make there point to a really bad theology. Recently, this week as a matter of fact, an individual with whom I am friends, now this girl, uh, she's a lady, excuse me, um, was a member of my youth group when I was a youth minister. And um, that means it was not around here, just so you know. Uh, And she now has teenage daughters, or at least a teenage daughter. That's how old I am. And she put out this blanket-wide Facebook prayer request. I want you to pray for my daughter because she has this audition at school and uh, she's auditioning for the top band at her high school. And so let's pray for her. Now, the difference between this one and most of the other ones I see is we actually got a follow-up post later that showed that the prayer request, well, she didn't know how I was praying for her daughter, uh, but the way she asked for the prayer request, we got a report that said it was a success. Let me ask you this. Let me just stop the story for a second and say, what makes for a successful prayer? And the answer to that typically is, well, it depends on what I want to happen with it. And if I get what I want, then it's a success. And so in this case, this lady's daughter, we we were asked to pray for her. She had this audition, and it happens two to three days later, comes back, great news. What do you think happened? She made the top band. She made the honor band. Thanks for the prayers. So let me, let's just play that out, all right? It's easier for you to do that with her than it is with some of your friends maybe who put prayer requests on Facebook. Let's play that out. What would have happened if she had not made the honor band? If the request was pray that she makes it and she doesn't make it, who's at fault there? And the answer clearly is you are because you don't have enough faith to pray her into the top band. Does that fit? Are y'all mad at me or what? You just, okay, a little gun shy now because we're pulling the cover back on how we pray. Um, Let's take it a step further. What about, uh, do you think if we would just pray hard enough that she didn't even have to practice and she still would have made the top band because we prayed her into it? You see how the theology that we use to undergird the stuff we do, it's a little bit spongy here. Here's the one that's even worse than that. What about the one whose parents asked for prayer for their daughter and she did not make it? What about the parent who might not be sure about this whole Christianity thing And we didn't pray for her daughter and she didn't make it. And therefore now, what does she do with Christianity? That only the in people get God's ear in prayer? How do we pray? What's the purpose of prayer? I used to get these prayer 
lists where people that we were friends with would give us a list of how we're supposed to pray for them. Um, I don't do well with those. And here's why. Let's go ahead and look a step further here. What, What James is saying for us is he's pushing us into a thorough treatment of what prayer is. But in the process of doing that, he is stretching us at the point of prayer's purpose. I want to take you in just a second to Matthew chapter 6, and so you can go ahead and start turning there. But but I want to come uh, to make this statement. I, I had the privilege last night to officiate the wedding ceremony of a couple of the young adults who uh, are part of our church family here. And um, I, I want to take our approach to prayer and I want to put it into their theoretical days ahead as a young couple, okay? Um, if those two uh, operate as they go forward in their relationship with God, uh, excuse me, in their relationship with one another the way modern Christianity wants to operate in their relationship with God, then that means that their whole relationship will be built on a series of requests of the other. Our prayers tend to be, God, would you please do this? And God, what about that? And God, please do this? And and, and so we, we kind of, if that's the sum total of our prayer life, then we have cheapened the relationship with God. And if we apply those same rules into uh, a marriage, then I got to tell you, that marriage is probably not going to last. If, now my wife over here is Teresa, some of you know her, some of you don't, you wonder why she's stuck with me all these years. Uh, here, here's the deal. If we operated our whole marriage where one of us was trying to always get the other one to do exactly what they wanted to do and nothing else. If that was the sum total of our interactions together as a married couple, then our marriage would not last. And yet when we take our that same approach to God and our relationship with him and it's always about the asking and it's always about the I need you to do this for me. I wonder how often God steps back, sits back, and goes, well, I had so much more in mind for you than that. So what is the purpose of prayer? Is it for us to just inform God of what we think we need at the moment? Or is there more to it than that? And the answer, obviously, you know, it is, is there's more to it than that. Our relationship with Jesus Christ is exactly that. It is a relationship. It is not just some convenient cosmic bellhop thing who delivers for us the stuff we need. But to reduce our relationship in prayer to only that means we're missing something. And I believe... And I think James is going to bear this out. Remember, this is just plowing the ground for what James is going to say. But I think what we find here is that we start at the wrong place with prayer. So let's see where Jesus started. Matthew chapter 6. This is sometimes called the Lord's Prayer. I think that's a bad way to refer to it because better said this is the model prayer. As a matter of fact, if I remember right, over in the book of Luke, 
Jesus' disciples say to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And he turns and he says, pray then in this way, which is what he says here. And so in the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6, we find it, and it's, uh, all right, so here, again, I interrupt myself because I just can't not say this. Jesus never says, pray this prayer. He says, pray like this. It's a teaching tool. And yet, the most recognizable prayer that we pray in all of the Bible is this one. Except that we get different translations, different versions. And so we don't know if we're supposed to say, you know, it forgives those who trespass against us or those who are dead against us. You know, we, we get hung up on that stuff. And Jesus said, this is the model for you to pray. He says then pray like this, our Father in heaven. Listen, listen to the positioning element of this prayer. Fully half of the prayer is designed to drive us to our knees. Our Father in heaven. Now we latch on to the Father word as we should. But it talks about God's position. He is in heaven, I'm not. I have to look up to him. It is very much a positioning kind of a statement. God is God. And if I forget that when I come to prayer, then I start at the wrong place. Our Father in heaven. And now it's not just about his position. Now it's about his character. Now, see, hallowed is none of you used, except maybe one guy, never used the word hallowed all week long, did you? But it sure sounds good when we pray it. It means to be holy, to be sanctified. The reality is God's name is already sanctified. His character is already sanctified. This is a positioning statement. Let your name be holified is the good way to say this. And then he says, he just finally just cuts to the chase. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so what Jesus has done for us in teaching us here is he's pulled us into this position that says when you come to prayer, this teaching mechanism that I'm putting in front of you says when you come to prayer, you come on your knees or you don't come at all. I'm not talking about the physical get down on your knees. Some of us would never get up if we tried that. It's a heart condition. Prayer is a positioning of ourselves with God. We can take that, and I'm going to go off of that one to another one or two here, but we could take that another step with, as I quoted last week, Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is there. He's about to be arrested. He's about to be uh, crucified. And in that, at that spot in that garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' prayer is his actual prayer models what we find here when he says, God, I don't want to do this. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this. But how does he finish it? Not my will, but yours. That's this prayer. You see? how that positioning things begins to drive what we... It's okay to say, God, this is what I want. I'm not at all suggesting that we should not go to God and say, you know what, this is on my heart today. I wish, you know, Aunt Susie's big old corn on her... I just, that just grosses me out. Would you just take it away? God might very well do that for you. By the way, if you have corns on your toes, it's okay. It's right. 
But for us to, to just flip that is wrong. It's not about your will being done. It's about his will being done. So that pushes me into John chapter 17. Now we get to the real Lord's Prayer. In John chapter 17, and I'm not going to take the time to go through all of this, but this is great study for you. Sometimes you get a chance to go devotionally study John chapter 17 and Jesus' prayer, or like I say, the Lord's prayer here. Look at verse 1. I want you to listen. I'm just going to go kind of fly through these very quickly. Several verses here that underscore that Jesus, practically speaking, prayed things. His requests in this prayer were tied specifically to what the Father's will was. You cannot imagine Jesus asking this and it not being God's will. Jesus aligns his will with the will of the Father. Verse 1, and when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Obviously, that's God's plan. That's why God sent him in the first place. We go to verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, he says, but they, that is the disciples, are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. That's a request. That is clearly God's plan for them. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one, which points us to verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. God's will for you is that you be kept from the evil one as his disciple. You don't have to ask if that's God's will. That's clearly God's will for you. But so many times we pray for things that works against that. We pray for things, and if God answered them, would put us straight in the path of the evil one. Verse 21, verse 24, we could walk our way through it. Let me see if I can bring this down to a conclusion. At its very essence, prayer is a positioning tool for us in our most important relationship in life. John Wesley great leader of the church, historically speaking, has this. Uh, the language is a little bit updated because I don't like talking in these and thous. But here is the covenant prayer John Wesley taught his followers to pray. Listen for the positioning element in this, and I quote, I am no longer my own but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low by you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant with which, uh, the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Is that your prayer with God? I think if you look closely at social media in our day and at the prayer requests that come across in our day, I think that you may find 
that we are desperately trying to bend God's will to ours. Prayer, its primary purpose is to connect with a holy God. Donald Barnhouse, one of the great preachers of American history, famously stood in his pulpit in Philadelphia one Sunday and in making his point made this basic claim. You have heard that it is said prayer changes things, but I am here to tell you prayer changes nothing. I like what Chuck Swindoll said as an addition to that. Barnhouse was not exactly right. Because when it is done properly, prayer changes me. So let's pray. And as we come to this time of prayer, let me just challenge you to take up the call to a revolution. It is long since past time for Christians to acknowledge the sovereignty of God in the things that drive us to pray. Is it possible that God would move through some of those difficult circumstances that we so quickly try to pray ourselves out of, and that he might use them to teach us and even maybe to reach someone else? Do you trust God enough to put yourself at his disposal? Do you have enough confidence in his love for you that you can say, it really is not what I want today, God. Simply do with me what you want. Father, we ask that you would do with us what you want. And if there are those here today who do not have that level of trust in you, my prayer is not for a nice, simple passage into faith for them. I pray that you would do what you see fit, as difficult as that may be for them or for me, that you would have your way so that you might be glorified through us. In Jesus' name, amen.